Welcome to an all-new Restoration Today podcast brought to you by DOT. Replace heavy jugs plus get better mold cleaning power with less odor and less product. DOT Cleaner features dilute oxidation technology powered by DOT's patented NT7 molecule. Get a free sample of DOT Mold Stain Cleaner and 20% off your first order at dotcleaner.com. A little does a lot. Hello there. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Restoration Today podcast. Today, I am joined by somebody in the industry that I've known for a while, and he has been writing articles for me in various capacities for years. Um, So it is Cole Stanton. He is the Director of Education and AED Specification at ICP Building Solutions Group, but you also might know him from his fiber lock days and some other things. He's been massively involved in IAQA. He's involved in the IICRC. Um, So he has an article coming out in the January-February issue on asbestos. So we are going to talk a little bit today about asbestos abatement, what that looks like in the industry today, kind of some of the trends and misconceptions about asbestos and all that. So Cole, thank you very much for joining me. I am just going to toss it over to you and have you just start by introducing yourself and share a little bit about your background in the industry. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is really nice to do this. So uh, I started in the early 90s. And long before I had any idea I'd be involved in restoration, I was involved in environmental abatement and took a position with this little 1980s startup. And I was sort of the second generation to come into the 1990s that was creating the first encapsulants for asbestos, the first that EPA accepted and still mm-hmm. Fiberlock still the first today to have an EPA accepted product. Uh, and I came in to build out their lead paint program. So I started as a lead head and childhood lead poisoning person and still am very passionate about that today and serve on the ASTM committees uh, and uh, subject matter expert for the lead paint encapsulation uh, standard. So working in lead and asbestos, kind of there was this natural progression when around the year 2000, we as the encapsulant people started getting phone calls from all over the industry after the Ballard case saying, we need a mold encapsulant. We went, what's a mold encapsulant? What do you want? Why do you want it? Why mold? And we were as puzzled as anyone for it, but we threw ourselves into it. We did a ton of research. We worked with some really smart people in this business and created the the IAQ product line for mold, the shockwave and aftershock and those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and lately, uh, my passion has been fire damage restoration and wildfire damage restoration. And I'm really grateful to the folks that have employed me over the last 30 some years, because you know, we've gone through a lot of changes. You know, Fiberlock got bought up and is part of ICP now. And ICP is a really impressive behemoth of all kinds of 15,000 different building products. Um, but they always were big on continuing education and they're always big on industry involvement. And so today, and since 2018, that's what I do. I'm the director of education and AED specification, which is A for architecture, E for engineering and D for design. Uh, so that's what keeps me really, really busy. And so for IICRC, um, you know, it's the S520 mold standard since 03 and um, some of my contributions are going into the 700, serving actively on the 760, which is the wildfire standard, mm-hmm. um, the MRS exam, the Harmonized Glossary Committee, the Continuing Education Committee. So, yeah, thankfully, the people I, I answer to are big believers in giving back. And uh, it's completely my favorite part of the job. 
That's good. It's it's always great when you fall into the role that you really, really, really want to be in. Okay, so I want to know more about before we jump into the rest of it, the harmonized glossary committee. What is that? What does that mean? And I think the industry would love to know that like the IACRC is that focused on the terminology, right? That you're there's a committee about it. So what is that? It's a really admirable project. Uh, it's about a year old. It is still, therefore, on the glacial scale of IICRC schedules, just getting started. I know they're going to love hearing me say that, but, you know, be realist. That's the way it works. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got so many standards now, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's flooring or carpet or stone or restoration. Uh, you know, you've got conflicting definitions and words are power. Words are very important things. Uh, and so the time has certainly come to define, uh, to look at those definitions, to try and make them more consistent. Um, the com- the committee is not trying to improve the definitions, although if someone as a subject matter expert sees something, they might share it with the consensus body and say, hey, you might want to look at this. Uh, but really, it's all about trying to get some consistency. Um, okay. And sometimes we can do that and sometimes we can. Look at the word encapsulate. The word encapsulate or encapsulant means very different things to a carpet person than it does to oh. a person who does asbestos or lead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes good sense. Okay. So good segue. So let's talk about asbestos today. Um, there, are, What are some of the big misconceptions that you're seeing? Like, I, I, I know, I guess I won't give a ton of it away, but people think that it's illegal or banned or whatever, and that it, and it's just not around anymore, but that's not the case, right? Right, right. And it's really important for the restoration contractors to be aware of the size and scope of our asbestos problem in our asbestos abatement industry, because that directly relates to how often when we're doing our work, you're going to run into it and therefore how much effort you need to put into being capable of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. So there's really a two part false assumption. The first one is um, we don't use that anymore. It's a problem confined to old homes and you know old boilers and pipes, and that's it. And that's wrong. Uh, and the other part of that is, well, we've been working on getting rid of it for so long. Isn't it all gone by now? Uh, and that also is is not the right answer. Um, you know, the the history of asbestos is goes back four thousand years. Uh, and I'll, I'll spare you most of the historical trivia, but whether it was the Egyptians, the Greeks, or the Romans, they all used asbestos. And frankly, they all made note of the fact that the workers who were quarrying it, notably slaves, were all dying really early. Uh, so you know, we've known for a long time. Now, in the Middle Ages, we lost track of what asbestos was and then sort of rediscovered it, like so many things about the Renaissance. Uh, okay. But... It really, asbestos is an industrial era product. That's what we think of. Uh, And it was the late 19th century and the early 20th century when it really kicked in, when people realized this miracle material could be used in so many different ways. And that's one of the challenges about asbestos is it's not like lead paint. Lead paint is paint and paint is only so variable. Asbestos, on the other hand, it it's an electrical insulator. It's a thermal insulator. It's chemically inert. It's amazingly flexible. It's stronger than steel. And you can blend it into so many different things. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right up the street from where I live in Boston, there was a company called Carter's who was famous for advertising their asbestos uh, pajamas for children. You know, so 
it, it's been used as an abrasive in toothpaste. Yeah, so it, it's remarkable, remarkable stuff. The problem is when it gets into our lungs, the five different types of asbestos share characteristics as amphiboles uh, that they have fibers that uh, are jagged and knife sharp uh, and are easy to inhale. And uh, because they're hydrophobic, um, they can't get um, out of our lungs with mucus the way, you know, that's mm-hmm. what our lungs are supposed to do. Uh, and frankly, they contain a lot of uh, iron and magnesium and other elements that are probably, probably related to uh, mesothelioma and asbestosis and some of the other cancers and diseases. And, you know, asbestos is insidious. I mean, our, our audience needs to remember it's a delayed um, carcinogen. You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to see the effects for 15 to 50 years. And when you're being exposed, it's a mineral. There's no odor. There's no texture. There's no taste. You're just being exposed. So it is truly an insidious carcinogen that, you know, if it wasn't for decades of industry lobbying, probably would get more attention today than it does. Uh, certainly, you know, it's been suppressed uh, at certain points in its history. Um, we really kicked in in this country, people don't realize, after the Second World War. Um, that was when we went on a building boom and mm-hmm. asbestos was touted as the miracle product. And it was everywhere, indoors and out, in vinyl floor tile and galbestos felt insulation, uh, in roof paneling, uh, just amazing range of places. It was used spray applied fireproofing being one of the really big ones because we're coming out of, you know, an early 20th century where fire was still a real scourge, you know, mm-hmm. you'd have massive city fires, et cetera. So, you know, anything that we could do to make our buildings more fireproof was, was uh, of great interest. So asbestos was very widely used, is widely used in Europe and Australia um, and the UK to rebuild after the Second World War. Uh, so we have a lot of asbestos in those places. So the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we, there was a ton of use. In fact, the United States use peaked in 1973. And okay. we then banned lead-based paint in 1978 and we never banned asbestos. In 1989, the EPA tried to ban asbestos, but the industry successfully had part of the ruling overturned, which allowed them to continue to use asbestos for existing uses and could import it. Uh, But we closed our domestic mines. We stopped mining asbestos in the United States in 2003, and I think the last Canadian mine closed in 2011. Um, And the first industrial mines opened in 1870. So there's your industrial era right there, the mm-hmm. 1870s till just this past decade. Um, so there's still a lot of asbestos. It's estimated on the optimistic fringe that we've addressed 10% of it, United States. On the more pessimistic side, it's estimated we've only addressed, you know, 30%. Um, excuse me, I flipped those around. 30%, yeah. yeah. Get yep. <laughs> Strike that, reverse it in the words of a famous, famous movie character. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's 10 to 30%, which means, you know, we 70% of the asbestos legacy is still out there. And the business is big. You know, there's no Wall Street studies. The environmental industry isn't studied the way, you know, some other industries are studied. So mm-hmm. unscientifically, I try and keep a track of, keep a consensus and I think it's probably in any given year because of the size of projects, could be three to four billion to ten to eleven billion. 
per wow. you know in any given year. And that's probably I'm throwing lead paint in as well. Call that asbestos okay. lead. And you know the big question is: Is it growing or shrinking? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. why should a restoration contractor pay attention? Isn't there a limited trajectory? It's finite. You know, does it really have tails? Is it really going to go places? Well, far as we can tell, from about 2010, 2011 to 2016, it was flat, maybe one to two percent down. Um, and then from 2016 to 2019, probably up two to three percent. So back on the positive trend. Pandemic flattened things out as you would yep. expect, yep. but we're expecting uh, 4% uh, to be reasonable uh, in the next couple of years and probably all the way into the 2030s and 2040s. And the environmental policy wonks, if you ask them, will say that EPA is going to tighten down the rules, which is going to increase the amount of abatement that needs to be done and increase the amount of asbestos that's of concern uh, probably by 2026, uh, okay. because they're already on their way to doing that under the Obama administration. And then, of course, you know, EPA shrunk to this mm-hmm. big during the past administration. So basically no programs move forward, regardless of what you think of them. Uh, so it's going to grow. It's going mm-hmm. to continue to grow, even though we're not adding anything to the mix. Um, and we're, we're going to see a move the goalposts phenomenon too that we've already seen for decades. EPA will say, well, these types of asbestos or these configurations, or when you when you encounter it in this situation, it's so dangerous you have to do this. Versus, if the asbestos is really tied up in knots over here, will you know you you can leave that alone. Well, every time we revisit the subject, we move the goalpost, and asbestos that was considered safe is now considered dangerous, and that will continue. So, okay. asbestos cement roofs that before were considered, you know what, that's not that's not a big deal. There's not a big exposure pathway. They will get addressed when before they were left alone. Um, the big concept I think that helps people is the word friable. Mm-hmm. And friable means that it is prone to getting airborne such that it can be inhaled or swallowed. Mm-hmm. Asbestos is one of those things where it doesn't grow. It's not going to grow like mold. Uh, it's not going to spread. And so if you can eliminate the exposure pathway, put a barrier between the asbestos-containing material, the ACM, and the occupants, then that's good. Uh, okay. This is why the definition of abatement anywhere in the United States is either removal or management in place. Both of those things are equally valid. And management in place means, because removal is self-explanatory, management in place means either enclosure or encapsulation. Enclosure being mechanically attached, like screwing in sheetrock. Encapsulation is liquid applied, non-reinforced, non-mechanical, basically a super coating that has to meet EPA standards, has to have gone through the EPA protocol, which EPA did in 1981 to 1984. Mm -hmm. So if we can make asbestos non-friable, if we can eliminate inhalation and, you know, get those sharp, jagged fibers and fibrils, you know, from never getting into our lungs in the first place, that's what we want. Because once they're in your lungs, you know, they're in there for good. How long does, you know, if you go the encapsulation route versus the removal, how long do those encapsulants work for? How long are they good for? Uh, In indoor applications, pretty much indefinitely. I mean, we're talking about acrylics and 
similar um, uh, substances. I describe it this way: if you've got a water bottle, mm-hmm. you know, and we all think about how many water bottles we're producing and how they basically have an infinite lifespan, that's yeah. plastic. You know, yeah. an acrylic coating is essentially a plastic that's been spread on a wall. It was suspended in a liquid, and you're spreading out and creating a plastic shell. So, indefinitely indoors uh, and outdoors a really long time, you know, 20 years is not at all unheard of. It really depends upon the exposure, the altitude, the UV, the salt spray, freeze thaw, whatever the case may be. Is the belief still true that if it's not touched and like the fibers aren't coming out that you leave it or should you, should contractors be doing something about it if they see it? Well, in a perfect world, if it wasn't friable, it wouldn't become friable. But the whole universe is based on entropy. And unfortunately, we all know that properties are eventually neglected Mm -hmm. by somebody. So what's not an immediate hazard today will at some point be an immediate hazard. Mm -hmm. So yes, we would like to encapsulate. And so when we're working on the renovation or restoration of heritage buildings and historic buildings and just renovation, um, where it's encountered encapsulation is a great solution because they were likely going to paint that surface anyway, or they were going to do some minor modifications and they don't want to remove all that. I'll give you an example. If you had a, this is one based in reality. If we have a federal office building, downtown LA, eight stories, uh, each floor was going to take about a million dollars to remove and then replace all the fireproofing, all the spray applied fireproofing. You know, you walk through a parking garage, you see that fiber stuff above your head. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. So to actually do all that work clear that building out and make sure, you know, everyone's out of the way, dreadful discombobulation, just, you know, disruption, the expense is insane. The time to do it is crazy. Well, if I can encapsulate that and leave most of it where it is, do my seismic retrofit, I can do half a million per floor. I can do the floor in half the time. A 10-year project becomes a five-year project, and I can move people around from swing space to swing space, and I don't even have to vacate the building. So there are situations where encapsulation can be an extraordinary uh, tool, and it's every bit as valid as removing it. The difference is you got to watch it. You have Mm -hmm. to, you have to maintain. Uh, And so, and that's really not that complicated in the spaces you usually find asbestos, you know, pipes in pipe chases, fireproofing above ceiling plenums. You're not talking about places that receive a whole lot of abuse. Yep. Are there any materials, building materials in the built environment today that you find restorers and cleaners are surprised contain asbestos? Sure. Yeah. Sheetrock. Um, felt, cement board, corrugated board, especially in newer construction. You know, the numbers vary. Mm -hmm. It's very underreported, but, um, you know, I saw one number from PBS NewsHour, which was 6,000 metric tons of asbestos imported into the United States between 2011 and 2015. I've seen other numbers from advocates which say it's hundreds of thousands of tons. Um, you know, EPA's ban only says no new use of asbestos. Well, duh, no new <laughs> use of asbestos. That was a real accomplishment, right? You know, you, Not so much. Yeah, yeah, what we're really talking about is we stopped digging it out of the ground in this mm-hmm. country. 
Instead, we're getting most of it from Brazil. Although Brazil okay. now banned it in 2017, as have 60 other countries, 60 plus, whereas the US and Canada have not. And most of our asbestos is starting to come from Russia. That's, that's gonna be our, our primary source. Uh, and it's going into not just construction products, but into automotive products, clutch pads, fuel injectors, uh, brake pads, lots of, lots of wow. the temperature components. Um, and then the chloralkali industry uses a ton of it to make chlorine. So, okay. you know, we, we are not asbestos free. It's, we are far closer to, to being without lead paint than we are asbestos in terms of we're not adding to the lead paint mess anymore. Mm -hmm. you know? So, but there's millions and millions of buildings in North America with both. Yeah. Okay. So, um, are you required to have a license in every state to do any sort of asbestos abatement? The, the tricky word you used is any, but for the most part, if we're going to handle asbestos legitimately, mm -hmm. we need to have a license. Asbestos is the most mature of the regulatory, you know, uh, re regulatory state amongst the environmental restoration disciplines. Okay. And we have very few states that have mold licensing, I think maybe as many mm -hmm. as nine, depending on how you count. Um, but lead and asbestos, to, to be an abatement contractor, to make it permanently safe, whether removing or encapsulating, um, you need to have a license. If the purpose of the project is encapsulation, what about if the purpose of the project is renovation? Well, then maybe you don't need a license or maybe you just need awareness training. There's a big difference. Awareness training is about two hours. To be a certified asbestos worker is about 32 to 40 hours. Uh, but I would advocate, and I encourage everyone to read the article coming up, mm -hmm. I would advocate that it's really smart, smarter than ever for restoration contractors to take the plunge, get involved. You know, you can, there are a lot of gradations of how you can handle it, but being blind to it and trying to avoid it and thinking it's not going to bite you and it's not going to hurt your business. Those days are over. Mm -hmm. you know, it's really important. You know, be the, when you're working in the restoration field or the environmental field with clients, you're dealing with clients who are probably having a once in a lifetime experience. You know, yep. you'd like to think so. Yes. And they are relying upon our professionals, whether it's our IEPs or our contractors, as the industry experts who are going to guide them through the process. And in the age of the internet, you know, they have certain expectations of, you know, everybody's going to be a guru that's going to help them. So a true professional, I think, in this day and age is positioned such that they've got resources at their disposal, they know who to call, and they can present themselves to the customer and say, I'm a healthy home contractor. I'm here to fix your problem. And if I also see things that are affecting your indoor environmental health, I'm going to tell you about them, and then you can decide what you want us to do. Because if you don't develop that expertise, your competitor will. Think about even general contractors these days. Uh, in the age of climate change, it's getting to the point where during the construction season in northern latitudes, there are very few precipitation-free days. Mm -hmm. So new mm -hmm. construction, all those two, you know, five over two podium clones that they're building out there are getting soaking wet. <laughs> so GCs are bringing on their own AMRTs. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to do that, then they're also going to cross-train them for asbestos and lead because a huge percentage of what they do is renovation of older structures. 
Uh, and I'll add to that, you know, the U.S. Green Buildings Council in their current version of LEAD, the Leadership in Environmental Excellence and Design Program, makes a very big deal about reusing building components. So if you're going to reuse building components wherever possible, because it's in the interest of the community, it's sustainability, then you better understand how to handle asbestos and lead. Because if mm -hmm. you can't turnkey it, whether you have the capability inside or an affiliated capability, you're going to lose out. Do you by chance know like the average cost of a residential abatement project? Like how much money could contractors be leaving on the table if they're not able to do this in-house for their clients? Yeah. Um, I know. The very, I think, the, I, I think it would be unfair to the audience to give them a number because the variables are yeah, just astounding. Yeah. I mean, we always talk about what a cop-out it is in the restoration industry when everyone says, well, every job is different. Well, the reason we say that is because it's true. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So what about um, lead paint? How, how should restorers be prepared to tackle that on a, a job site? So lead paint is certainly different. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things about asbestos is asbestos guys were never really, there was no real crackdown to say you have to have an asbestos inspection until recently, since about 2008, when certain states realized it was a revenue stream to go out and issue violations to restoration contractors for not having had an asbestos inspection. You know, the, this idea that we're an emergency contractor and therefore we're exempt from asbestos inspection, that that concept is no longer valid. Okay. Uh, so um, you really have to correct the emergency situation and then get an asbestos inspection. Whereas there doesn't seem to be an enforcement curve or trajectory for lead in that regard. Uh, and I think in part um, that has to do with uh, lead isn't taken as seriously as asbestos is. Um, even though, as I said, asbestos is a deferred health hazard that won't hit you for 15 to 50 years. Whereas once lead's in your bloodstream, it's having toxic neurotoxic effects in 24 hours. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a there, there's certainly something about lead when it comes to the fact that it involves children and children under the age of six are most vulnerable. Lead is the number one environmental health hazard and has been per the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, to children in the United States for years. Hmm. Uh, and no one is going to undermine our responsibilities in terms of lead around kids because we don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, however. If kids aren't present, then there's far less obligation, if any, to address the lead. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I still get asked at, you know, pediatrician appointments, just had one for my two-year-old yesterday. Mm -hmm. Do you have lead paint? When was your house built? And, yep. you know, yep, all of that. Now, so encapsulation of lead is something that anybody can do. If you're going to call it abatement, if you already have a sick child, then it has to be a professional that's doing it under the guidance of a certified lead assessor. Um, but lead encapsulation is essentially a super paint put over the old lead paint. And it looks like paint, it smells like paint, and you get it in the color you want, you get a 20 year warranty, and it's a really great way of doing things. The big difference is it has to go on thicker than ordinary paint. So you get about 100 square feet out of a gallon as opposed to 300. Uh, but to get the benefits, it's worth it. A lot of the encapsulants even have an anti-ingestant in them now so that if a toddler was to put the mouth around the windowsill or something like that, they'd immediately be repelled and stopped by how foul it tastes. 
Interesting. Um, so, but lead encapsulants have to meet a certain standard, a certain ASTM mm -hmm. standard. Asbestos encapsulants were tested to a certain EPA protocol. And an asbestos encapsulant is not a lead encapsulant in other way around. And we try not to use the word encapsulant at all when it comes to mold and fire soot. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, that would be like a whole nother podcast that we could do, right? Mm -hmm. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I won't go there. Okay. So when it comes to lead, we think of lead paint, right? And so you're talking about encapsulating that or abating it or whatever. Are there other um, places in homes or buildings where lead comes into play that contractors should be aware of, or is paint really like, this is the main thing you should be looking at. It's mainly paint. It's okay. mainly paint. Uh, there are, there are lots of specialty situations that come up and we tend to field a lot of those because it kind of rises to our level in terms of complicated questions, but yep. really for the most part, it's paint. Um, okay. You know, you're working in certain industrial situations. You might get all kinds of things, beryllium, silver, arsenic, you know, mercury. Um, but for the most part, you're concerned about peeling paint and you're concerned about dust. You know, actually, mm -hmm. you know, one thing we shouldn't forget is every contractor in the United States disturbing a certain amount of paint has to be renovate right trained. The RRP program that was, you know, so big in the early 2000s, that's still in place. Okay. Uh, so if you create clouds of lead dust and leave it behind, that's asking for pretty serious EPA enforcement. You know, you do not want to be the person that lightning strikes um, because, you know, slow to rouse, slow to anger, but once angered, EPA can be a real tough customer. Uh, so, you know, taking a belt sander and, you know, sanding outdoor lap siding, creating clouds of dust across the neighborhood is a really bad idea. Not saying that a restoration contractor ever does that, mm -hmm. but we need to clean up after ourselves. Uh, and typically what that means is, you know, being fastidious about, you know, being clean, but we are for as restoration contractors anyway, if we leave behind dust on a mold job, it's condition two, right? You're not at yep. condition one. Um, but there are lead specific cleaning technologies, which are really helpful because lead is really heavy. You know, we all know that from going to the dentist and having that apron put over us or going for x-rays, you know, now imagine you're trying to clean up particles off a surface using soap and water and a sponge and you want to get that particle to move, it's not going to move. If you're lucky at all, you might smear it around. You might move it from over there to over here. So lead cleaning technology uses chemistry to bond to the lead, actually using the same science that doctors use when they're trying to chelate the children who have high bio burdens of lead. So chelation is how they get the body to get rid of the lead and replace it with something else, usually calcium. Um, so adapting that technology to actually create something that's actually going to pick up the lead so it actually washes free off the surface makes a huge difference. I mean, we all know, you know, when you're considering how tight cash flow is, et cetera, do you want to clean something 10 times or twice? Yeah, preferably twice. Same thing goes with fire, right? How many times do you need to go over the walls before you actually get it cleaned the way it's supposed to be cleaned? Okay, so I always like to ask people before we wrap it up, this can be related to what we've talked about or it doesn't have to be. I love to hear stories of interesting projects you've worked on lately. So like one interesting project that you've been on, whether it's a wildfire one or a commercial job or whatever, you have anything interesting you've been working on that you can tell us about? Oh, man. Um, geez, there have been, been a lot of them in the last um, year or so. Um, <laughs> I know. Wow, I you really totally put garden. you on the spot. 
you really caught me off guard with this one. Um, I mentioned the the asbestos one. Um, I, I think you know I'm still very fond of the uh, the Los Angeles fire one we worked on, where um, the entire front facade of the office building was blown off. Um, it was a, a truly explosive fire situation. Uh, and so your fire particulate was driven into this building uh, and into the HVAC system and into the spray applied fireproofing. Uh, and so, you know, there was no way that you're gonna clean something that was impacted at that velocity in surfaces as porous as fiberglass duct lining and uh, spray applied fireproofing. Um, so it was really a good illustration of what we teach with fire teaching clean for paint. You know, let's be realistic. In restoration, our job, one of the only universal things about restoration is source removal. Your mm -hmm. number one job is to remove as much of the contaminant, much of the source of the residue as possible. Then we can talk about using chemicals and coatings as, you know, complementary tools is the phrase we like to use, taking that from the S520, you know, um, helpful and complementary tools. Uh, so with fire, we're going to clean and um, then we're going to use a sealer because what other way are we going to do it? And we're going to have to use a water-based sealer because you can't bring something like alcohol-based shellac into the interior of ductwork or onto fire-rated fireproofing. Um, so that was a great example of taking techniques we learned from asbestos um, where we used both a penetrating encapsulation, which is diluting the encapsulant, spraying it on to stabilize things, and then putting it on again at full strength as a bridging encapsulant. Um, so it was the very natural and very sort of intuitive carryover of lessons learned from asbestos to lessons learned with fire. So, okay. Okay. Perfect. I love it. Okay. All right. Anything else you want to share before we wrap it up? You've covered a lot. Uh, you know, don't be afraid of asbestos. It's really not that complicated. If you have mastered your trade in restoration, then it's arguable you've already mastered something more sophisticated than asbestos. Okay. Yeah. So get involved, do it the right way. And as always, cultivate your sources. Know who you can trust, know who you can call. Um, you know, we all have networks that make us successful. This is just another example of networking at a B2B level where everybody wins. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Well, Cole, thank you very much. And for those who are listening, be sure to check out Cole's article as well. This video is gonna be embedded in that. So maybe they're reading the article and listening to this, but be sure to check out Cole's article in the January, February issue of CNR. And Cole, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for your time. Same to you, Michelle, it's fun. For more Restoration Today, visit our website, cnrmagazine.com, or find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts.